Bible that is in front of you. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. So Sean read the text earlier, so I'm not going to read it now. Uh, But we will be alluding to it all throughout the sermon. So let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this ancient story set in the kingdom of Persia to challenge us, to confront us, to shape us, to mold us. Help us to encounter you in the pages of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Adolf Eichmann was a killer. He wasn't just a regular, everyday sort of killer. He was one of Adolf Hitler's chief lieutenants. And he was responsible for the logistics of handling what Hitler called the final solution to what Hitler said was the Jewish problem. So at first, during World War II, Eichmann, Uh, who just happens to have the same first name as as Hitler, Adolf Eichmann, uh, was responsible for figuring out the logistics of how to get the Jewish people into the ghettos and then how to get them into the concentration camps, places like Auschwitz that uh, live in infamy. It was his job to get the trains running to put the Jewish people on these cattle cars and just box them in there and send them to places like Auschwitz. This was his job. This was his genius. He was gifted at logistics. Then as the war progressed and and Hitler and his team crafted the final solution, as they called it, the plan was not simply to put the Jews in some box-off reservation or ghetto or some um, offshore place. They, They thought about shipping them all over places around the world. They decided the simplest plan was genocide. Kill every single Jew. And so towards the end of the war, Eichmann's job shifted. He was still responsible for logistics, but now his logistical genius was crafted towards figuring out how to quickly and efficiently kill six million Jews. Adolf Eichmann was a killer. Adolf Eichmann was a monster. He survived the war. Six million Jews did not. After the war, Eichmann went into hiding, snuck through Austria, ended up in Argentina. And he lived for about close to 20 years in Argentina before the Mossad, that's the Jewish version of the CIA, caught up with him. They found him and planned a uh, a pretty suspenseful, I mean, it would make a good spy movie. They, they planned this grab operation where they, they mapped out his daily routine, where he went to work, what bus he took back from work, and they caught him as he was at the bus stop. They had to wait a little longer that night because he wasn't on his regular bus. They almost aborted the operation, but at the last moment they saw him coming on another, on another bus. And so when he stepped off that bus, they grabbed him went to a safe house for about nine days. And then, I'm not sure how, but they smuggled him out of the country back to Israel where he stood trial for his crimes against the Jewish people. 
there was a lot of protests. People said it was a illegal grab operation, that the Argentinian sovereignty had been violated. It created an international uproar. But in the end, Eichmann was found guilty of his crimes against the Jewish people, and he was executed. He paid, at least in some small way, for the murder of six million Jews. Eichmann was a killer. Eichmann was a murderer. Eichmann was a monster who wanted to work with Adolf Hitler, not just to kill off a couple of Jewish people, he wanted to eliminate the entire lot of them. Pretty much just like the villain who was introduced into our story in Esther chapter 3. Chapter 1 talks about King Xerxes. I know his name is Ahasuerus in the text. His, his, uh, his other name was Xerxes, and I'm going to say Xerxes because that's easier for me to pronounce. All right. So there's King Xerxes and Vashti introduced in chapter 1. Chapter 2 introduces us to Mordecai and to Hadassah the Jew, who, as Sean explained last week, became Esther's queen. Then chapter 3 introduces us to the villain of this story, and it describes him as Haman the Agagite. Now, if you were a Jewish person reading this book thousands of years ago, you'd say, oh, oh, that means he's going to be a bad dude. Even without reading the next verses, even without knowing that uh, how the story ends, you would just read it and be like, oh, yeah, he's the villain. Because as an Agagite, he's descended from the king of Amalek. Now, there was some serious um, beef between the people of Israel, in particular the descendants of Saul, who was the tribe of Benjamin. Pop quiz, does anybody remember who Sean said that Mordecai was descended from? Tribe of Benjamin. There is beef between the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's people, and the Amalekites. Mordecai comes from one of these people groups. Haman comes from the other people group. And there was literal warfare between these groups as Israel was trying to establish its monarchy under the first king of Israel, King Saul. In fact, it was so strong that God told Saul that when they went to battle that he was to kill all of the Amalekites. It was a command that Saul did not keep. And now one pops up in Persia. A Jewish person reading this story would have said, all right, I don't know how this story ends, but I know this guy, Haman, is trouble because I know his family tree. I know Mordecai's family tree, and so he goes back to the good guys, and I know, and I know Haman's family tree, and it goes back to the bad guys. So you're reading this, and on a literary level, you're sensing we are in for some trouble. We are in for some conflict. There is something about to go on. Now, Haman is one of the most powerful people in the Persian Empire. The, the, the king makes him uh, kind of like second in command of the Persian kingdom. And he passes this law that everybody has to bow down and, and pay homage to, to Haman as he walks by. Mordecai, the Jew, from the tribe of Benjamin, says no. It's interesting. There's a lot, of, a lot of instances of power and defiance throughout the book of Esther. Early on, it was Xerxes calling for Vashti, and Vashti says no. Now it's 
It's uh, Haman asking everyone to bow before him, or the, at least the king asks everyone to bow before him. And Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to. And it creates a kind of a, of a uproar among the, the officials there in the palace of Susa, because apparently Mordecai works in the palace. He works in the, in the fortress of Susa. He's one of the king's people too. He's just not as high ranking as Haman. And so there's this kind of murmur. What is going on here? And verse four of chapter three tells us it's because he was a Jew. People are trying to explain it. They're like, why is he doing this? Why, why doesn't he show the proper respect? It's like, you know, uh, even if you don't like the queen of England, when she walks into the room, you stand up. Or even if you don't like the particular president of the United States, when he walks into the room, you stand up, right? You shake his hand, you, you show respect. You respect the office, right? Why would Mordecai not show respect to Haman? Uh, when I first read this, when I was younger, I assumed that this was like some sort of worship involved and that the bowing down is like, you're supposed to, to worship. And of course, a Jewish person couldn't do that. That's not actually what's involved here. This is simple. This is just respect. This is courtesy. This is being polite to a governmental leader. And Mordecai says, no. And everyone is, begins to murmur about it. And in verse 4, they're like, well, I guess it's because he's a Jew. Which is interesting because Mordecai had told Esther to go underground with her Jewishness. Hadassah the Jew is not to let anybody know that she's a Jew. But apparently everybody knows that Mordecai's a Jew. He didn't, under, he didn't go underground with his identity. He's flouting it. And everyone's like, well, I guess the only explanation for why he won't pay this respect that's due to Haman is because this dude's a Jew. The text tells us that Haman was filled with rage, which is interesting because his name in Hebrew sounds like the Hebrew word for rage. The writer is, is kind of doing a, a Hebrew pun here for us to help us think and associate rage with Haman. Haman is a man who is filled with rage, and as such, he epitomizes the idea of our series title, Rage of Nations. Haman is raging against God and against his anointed. Haman is a man who is so consumed with rage that when he sees that this man is defying him, he decides, I'm not just going to stop with offing this one man. I have to kill all his people too. And, and the, the murmur going around, the, the word going around on the street in verse 4 is that it's because he's a Jew. Therefore... I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill all the Jews. And so he, uh, he casts lots. In the text, it's described as something called pur. So they were these, these dice that they had back then, and, and you would roll the dice. A lot of cultures back then believed in, in astrology. They believed that, that the stars governed their fate and that there was some sort of mystical destiny, and you could experience it through chance encounters. People still believe that kind of stuff today. So he's rolling the dice to see when is the lucky day. Like, when is the day where I'm going to have the most success, according to the universe? When am I going to have the most success at wiping out the Jews? So he rolls the dice, and he gets a time about a year from 11 to 12 months from, from when he rolls the dice. So he's like, all right, I got about a year to prepare my version of the final solution. And it was called Pur, rolling the dice. Interestingly, the Jewish people now celebrate, and they do this to this day, they celebrate a festival called Purim. This is where the idea comes from. They are celebrating not chance, not fate, but they are celebrating what they believe is God's 
miraculous intervention that rescued their people, they didn't think that the, the roll of the dice was chance. They thought that the fact that they got a year to prepare was a miracle. That that was God behind the scenes pulling the strings. But he rolls the dice and finds out that in about a year, according to the universe, at least that's what he believes, he's going to have a golden opportunity to wipe out every last Jew in the kingdom, in the, in the Persian kingdom, the Persian empire. Now, much like America, the Persian empire was a kingdom that prided itself on its multiculturalism. And we've seen that several different times throughout the text so far in the first three chapters. It talks about writing letters to every different ethnic group in the, in the empire. In fact, this law that they passed that says we're going to kill all the Jews, they have to write that in all of these different languages. Why? Because the Persian kingdom was all about multiculturalism. They really subscribed to that theory, and that's why this is so jarring. This idea that we are going to figure out a people group and we're going to wipe them out. Haman fomented ethnic loathing. He comes to the king, Xerxes, and he says, King, there is a particular ethnic group. They're not like us. They have different customs. They have a different diet. They have their own laws. They're a threat. They're, they're not good for your, your rule. They're not good for our kingdom. They're a threat against our national security. So we need to do something about this people group. Kind of reminds me of in World War II. And the Americans were scared, reacted to the Japanese bombing on Pearl Harbor by going along with the internment of hundreds of thousands of Japanese Americans. Simply because they were Japanese. There's this people group among us. We should be scared of them because of what they could do to us. So what Haman does is he plants this idea in the king's mind. It's interesting, Xerxes, throughout the book, he almost never has his own ideas. He's always getting ideas from his advisors and doing whatever it is they say. So he's like, okay, sounds good. We'll wipe out the Jews. I don't know if he gives it even a second thought. And, and uh, when, when uh, Haman gets to talking about money, most likely what he is proposing in the text is that this is going to be an expensive operation. He's going to have to mobilize the military, the police, get the government involved. This is going to cost a lot of money to wipe out the Jewish people. So he's like, here's how we're going to fund it. Once we kill the Jewish people, we'll take all their stuff and we'll put that money back into the treasury. That's how we'll balance the books. And Xerxes is like, okay, so long as you can balance the books, I don't care who you kill. And that's the end of chapter three. So we've had... Vashti deposed to make way for Hadassah the Jew. We've had Mordecai who's telling her to go underground. Then we're introduced to the villain of the story here in chapter 3. And readers are left in turmoil. The last verse of chapter 3 says that the king and Haman, they sit down to drink and eat. They're like, alright, we just made a plan to kill thousands of people. Let's party. But it says that Susa, the city of Susa, is in turmoil. Everybody's like, did you, did you read the paper this morning? Did, did you hear about what was on Twitter? The king just made this new law, and it's being translated into, into every language, and it's being sent throughout the, throughout the kingdom and the empire. And every single, I mean, like I have a Jewish neighbor. What's going to happen to him? I guess he's not going to make it. 
What about his kids? I, I, I don't know. I think they're supposed to die too. And so the city is in an uproar. Pretty soon, I'm sure, the entire kingdom is in an uproar. And the king, King Xerxes, and the powerful leader, Haman, sit down to eat and drink. Chapter 3. But what about chapter 4? Well, there's a Jewish woman named Hadassah who has become the powerful, sort of, queen of Persia. Now, I want to recap just a little bit of what we talked about last week, in case you weren't here, or to, to kind of help us understand it just a little bit more. There was a, there was a contest. It was like Hunger Games meets The Bachelorette meets, I'm not sure what else it meets, but they called all of these virgins throughout the Persian Empire and they bring them to the palace. And over the course of a year, they prepare them for their one night with the king. Esther's night with the king goes really well. And so she's picked to be the queen of Persia. Now, there's a couple of important points here. One, Esther is a victim. She's swept up. She's, she's cold. She's pulled. Okay, She's brought in as a victim. She's exploited. She is trafficked in this story. But she also bears responsibility. This has come up a couple of times. Um, two or three of you have uh, discussed this with me this week. Whether or not she is guilty for sin in sleeping with the king. And I think that the clear answer according to a biblical ethic is yes. She may have been a victim in being swept up into this system that is beyond her control, but she can control her one night with the king. And she chooses immorality. She chooses the path of least resistance. She chooses to blend in. If you disagree with me on that, we can talk about it later. But She's blending in, just like her uncle told her to do. Her uncle said, hide your Jewishness. Now, this has also sparked a lot of conversations among a number of you this week, so I want to elaborate a little bit on what Sean said. There were 613 commands for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, 613 rules that they had to follow. To be Jewish meant to follow those laws. To be Jewish meant to worship the God of Israel. So... To hide her Jewishness meant a whole lot more than me hiding my Americanness. I could walk in here and say, hey guys, I'm Canadian. And you'd be like, oh, okay. Right? You wouldn't know. Be like, I celebrated Thanksgiving on a different day because I'm Canadian and, and so I have different stuff, right? And you'd be like, okay. Um, but it's not the same way for Hadassah. There's this thing called the Sabbath. What's she going to do on Saturdays? Is she going to say, King, I, I, can't, I can't do this on Saturday because I worship Yahweh? Or what about the, the diet? I can't, I can't eat the pork. I can't eat the shrimp. I can't wear those kind of clothes. They're against my religion. Well, I thought you were Persian. Uh, yeah, well, see, yeah, I mean, I'm Persian, but like... She has to go underground with her entire religion in order to pull this off. And then, of course, there's her name. Esther 
is derived from the from the, the Persian word Ishtar. It's one of the goddesses of the Persian Empire. So what Esther does is she goes from being Hadassah the Jew to being Esther, pretending that she is worshiping the gods and goddesses of the empire. What Esther chapter 2 presents to us is a, is a portrait of a victim, yes, but someone who is morally compromised to the very core of her being. She has chosen to abandon her Jewishness, which means she has chosen to abandon the God of Israel. She's going to be a devotee of Ishtar and all the other gods and goddesses of the Persian Empire. See, she's not just giving up her ethnicity. To give up your ethnicity in Old Testament times, you had to give up your religion. They were like this. You can't tear them apart. They're a package deal. So she goes underground. She, she squanders her spiritual birthright just like Jacob for a mess of pottage. And then she lives in the palace, probably doing the best that she can to survive. And about five years after she is chosen as the queen, she hears that there's an uproar going on. The, uh, her uncle is outside the city gate, and he's fasting, and he's mourning. He's, he's wearing funny clothes of mourning, and she doesn't know what's going on, which strikes me as odd that she doesn't know what's going on. She hasn't heard the news. She's not been on Twitter this morning. So, so she's like, I don't know what's going on. So she sends a messenger because she's living in sort of this palace bubble. So she goes or she sends a messenger outside the city gate because Mordecai can't come through the king's gate. He can't come into the palace in clothes of mourning. So she sends a messenger with a, a fresh outfit so that he can change so that he can come in and talk to her. Mordecai's like, no, I can't change into, into party clothes. I can't change into my business outfit to go to work. Like, this is the time for mourning. This is a time for lamentation. And so the messenger goes back, and he's like, he wouldn't put on the clothes. I don't know what to do. She's like, okay, well, go back to him and talk to him and find out what, what's going on. If he's not going to come to me, you've got to go to him and find out what in the world is going on. And so the messenger goes back and forth. And, and as far as we know, they never have a face-to-face -face encounter. All of this conversation is relayed to this guy with a funny name, Hathak, uh, Hathak, or something like that. And so they have this conversation, and Mordecai tells his niece, he tells Esther the queen that maybe she should go back to being Hadassah the Jew. He tells her what's going on. He says all our people are threatened. Every last one of us is going to be killed within a year's time. Men, women, children, we're all going to be wiped out. You got to do something. She said, I can't do anything. This is, a, this is a, a society dominated by the king. He's practically like the god of our, of our kingdom. I have no power. I'm, I'm just the queen. I'm his eye candy. Like, there's no, I, I don't have any real power over him. And Mordecai's like, yeah, but you've got some power. And you need to use it. She says, you don't understand. I haven't been summoned to the king's chambers in 30 days. He used to call for me all the time. We used to talk all the time. But now not so much. I haven't been to the king's 
wing of the palace in a moment. And if you go into the king's presence without being summoned, without being called, there's a, there's a penalty for that. It's inscribed in the law, you will be executed. Unless the king sees you and he stretches out his golden scepter to you and invites you into his presence. She said, if I go to the king without being summoned, I will be taking a big risk. I will be putting my life into, my, into his hands. It's interesting. The book began with the king summoning the queen, and the queen said no. Now we're, we're at the moment where the queen has not been summoned, and she has to decide if she's going to go anyway. This book is really set up very brilliantly. Um, as, as the Lord inspired this text. Queen Esther had good reason to fear the king. I mean, aside from how he tried to humiliate Vashti and how he eventually exiled her, there's a number of other things that King Xerxes was known for. Sean talked a little bit last week about uh, the Battle of, of the 300 and against the Spartans. So in that, uh, in that war, Xerxes mutilated and publicly displayed the corpse of his vanquished foe, Leonidas. It wasn't just enough to beat him in battle. It wasn't just enough to kill him. He had to mutilate his body and hang it up for everyone to see. His soldiers followed his lead by raping and pillaging in their war against Greece. And Xerxes decapitated some of his Phoenician servants when they didn't do so well in battle, including there's a, a legendary story. It may not actually be true, but it illustrates the kind of cruelty for which he was known in the ancient world. That there was this Persian, uh, there, or there was this Phoenician ship, and King Xerxes, who's Persian, they were fighting against the Phoenicians, and they, they were uh, somehow cast overboard, but then they climb up onto the ship. And the Phoenician uh, helmsman saves his life. And so at first, the king is really grateful, and he gives him a golden wreath. But then later on, a number of Persian people die on board that ship, and so the king turns around and decapitates the guy that just a short time earlier he had given this golden wreath to and rewarded him for. Whether that particular story is true or not, we do know that Xerxes' reputation in the ancient world was one of that he was a cruel and sadistic man. You do not mess with Xerxes. Except Mordecai's like, you got to mess with me. I know he hasn't called you for a month, but you got to go back and see the king. Our lives are hanging in the balance. Now, I imagine if I were Esther, if I were Hadassah the Jew, I'd feel a little frustrated. First, Mordecai asks me to hide my ethnicity. Now he asks me, to risk my life by putting it in the open. Some people say, well, this proves that he was doing, uh, that they were doing the right thing because it eventually works out. We don't actually know that. The end never justifies the means. And there's lots of stories in the Bible where people do wrong things and then a sovereign God intervenes and still works it out for good. Kind of like the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and he looks at them and he says, hey, you did a bad thing. You did something evil, but God orchestrates it for good. I think that's what's happening. That's what's unfolding in this story, because I can think of a different way this could have turned out. I can think of what if Esther had been upfront about her ethnicity when she became the queen. And Xerxes is sitting there, and Haman comes up, and he's like, hey, 
I would have wiped out all the Jewish people. And Xerxes is like, Jew, 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 Jew. Oh, wait, my wife is Jewish. No, we're not going to do that. Pick another plan. Haman's like, oh, man, foiled again. Right? There are other ways that this story have, could have played out. We automatically assume because this is the way that it played out. The sinful path must somehow be okay. And that the end does justify the means. But the Bible actually teaches us the opposite. She's frustrated, I imagine. She's going back and forth with Mordecai. And Mordecai says, look, it sounds to me like a threat. He says, um, we're going to be saved. One way or the other, we will be saved. But I don't know if your family will be saved. I don't know why Mordecai said that. I thought about it this week, and I have no good explanation for it. But it does sound like a threat. And then he says something very powerful. He says, who knows? Maybe you came to power for such a time as this. Maybe you have become the queen for this moment. Maybe amidst all the injustice of this kingdom, the deposition of an exile of Vashti, and your, your exploitation in the harem and all that's going on and everything that's wrong in the kingdom, maybe there is someone behind the scenes, the grand puppeteer pulling the strings. Maybe, maybe there is some invisible sovereignty at work. And maybe, just maybe, you have come to power for such a time this and so Esther the queen says alright get our people together and tell them to fast for three days interestingly there's no mention of prayer but I think probably they're praying too because when Jewish people fasted they would pray as well they fast for three days and three nights no food we're just gonna we're just gonna pray we're just gonna cry out to God He's still not mentioned. This would have been a great time to mention him if you're the writer of this book. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit, as he inspires this text, is leaving himself out of it. And he doesn't want us to conclude that God is absent, but what he wants us to conclude is that God is hidden. You see, sometimes in our lives, whether it's personally or whether it's on a societal level, we feel like God is absent. We're like, man, this would be a really nice time for you to show up, God. My personal life is in shambles. The country is going crazy. Like, this would really be good if you would come back right now. God, would you, would you show that you're on the throne? Would you do something? And we feel like God is absent, but God is never absent. Instead, he's hidden. He's hidden as this chapter concludes. Esther sends this reply. She's like, go, gather the people. Let's fast. And then after three days, I will go to the king. And she utters these famous words, if I perish, I perish. Esther the queen, it doesn't stay Esther the queen. She reverts to being Hadassah the Jew. She is going to publicly identify with her people. She is going to take her stand with her people, knowing that they have a death sentence upon them. And she is willing to join in with that death sentence. If I perish, I perish. And that's the end of the story for today.
Now, I know you want to fast forward. You want to get to the good part. But we're going to resist doing that. Sean talked about that last week, how hard it is for us to try to rein it in. We want to linger in the tension of this moment. Because for them, think about those three days where they're fasting. They don't know what's going to happen. They had to sit there in it for three days and fast. And hopefully they were praying. And they don't know how this is going to work itself out. They don't know if there's going to be a nice little bow tied at the end of this story and everyone's going to live happily ever after. They don't know how it's going to end. And so they have to sit in the tension of this moment. And so we're going to do that too. I want to propose a few points of application for you. First, I think we need to trust God when injustice is the law of the land. The Jewish people, they believed in God. They knew what justice was. The, the law was full of explanations of justice. And so they know that this is not justice. This is evil. This is wickedness. This is murder. And there for three days, they're crying out to God. Wondering, has God forgotten? Has God forgotten what justice is? Has God forgotten who his people are? Simply because we disobeyed the law and now we're in exile and now we're in Persia. Has he given up on us? Has he been faithless because we were faithless? Or is he still faithful even when we're faithless? Sometimes when we look around, we feel like there's injustice at my job, in our city, in our country, in your family. There's lots of different ways that that could manifest itself. Esther and her people had to come to grips with the fact that when injustice is the law of the land, that is the time to trust God. He may be hidden, but he's not absent. Second, we should speak up for those who are different. Haman fomented this fear implanted this fear in the king's heart. There's this particular ethnic group, this particular people. They're different than us. Different food, different customs, different laws. They're a threat to the well-being of your kingdom. So Xerxes, let's do something about it. I mentioned earlier the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Every society throughout the last thousands of years since we started has been prone to this idea of demonizing and, and putting a stigma upon those who are different. God calls Christians to be people who resist that, to stand up for the vulnerable in our midst. Third, have the courage to resist the culture instead of blending in. So I've said that Hadassah the Jew blended in so well that nobody she worshipped the God of Israel. It would have been impossible to hide her Jewish ethnicity without also hiding her Jewish religion. She pulls it off really well. Nobody knows she worships the Most High God. Everybody thinks that she's a polytheist, meaning she worships many gods. Everybody just assumes that she worships all the gods and goddesses of the Persian Empire. Everybody just assumes that she's okay with the... Um, the sexual immorality that's rampant in the palace at Susa. Everybody just assumes she's okay with all of it. 
the drunken orgies and the feasting and all of it. She's okay with it. I mean, she's never said anything otherwise. And she's even participated in it from time to time. But God calls his people, whether it's the Jews in exile in Persia or whether it's Christians living in New York City, he calls us to be different. There was a command, one of the, one of the commands that was given in the, in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Leviticus where God told Esther's people, be holy as I am holy. That was a command that I wonder if it was ringing in Esther's ears during her time of compromise, these five years as she serves as the queen. I wonder if those words haunted her, be holy as I am holy, because she has made a conscious choice. Yes, I get that she was a victim and that she was swept up and there were systemic forces outside of her control, but at some level she also does have choice. And she chooses to hide her religion. She chooses to go underground, and those words must have haunted her. Be holy as I am holy. And she has not been. There's been the orgies. There's been the drunken parties. There's been the immorality of the one night with the king. There's been the feasts and the drink offerings to the goddess Ishtar and all the other gods and goddesses of Persia. There's been a lot that she just kind of had to push down in her conscience. The people in her life didn't know what she believed. They couldn't tell any difference between her life and theirs. It's interesting, that same command, be holy as I am holy, is repeated for Christians in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's in the writings of Peter, in First and Second Peter. He quotes from Leviticus, and he says, God has called us as Christians, as the New Testament people of God, to be holy as he is holy. That means we're not to blend in with Persia. That means we're not to blend in with New York City. We ought to be distinct. We ought to be different. We ought to have a different sexual ethic. We ought not be the people drunk at the parties. We're not the ones doing the dirty dancing. We're not the ones watching those shows. And now you're like, your pastor's meddling now. <laughs> are we called to be different? Or are we called to the sameness? Are we called to blend in? Or are we called to be distinct? We trust God when injustice is the law of the land. We speak up for those who are different, and we have the courage to resist the culture instead of blending it. Earlier I told you the story of Adolf Eichmann and how he was captured by the Mossad. But I left out one important part of the story. There was a woman named Sylvia, Sylvia Ermann. She was the girlfriend of Eichmann's son. You see, Eichmann escaped through Austria and ended up in Argentina, and he had his son with him, and he lived there for about 20 or so years. And eventually, his son was of dating age. He started dating this girl named Sylvia, not knowing that she was Jewish. Because like Hadassah, she was hiding her Jewish identity as well. So Adolf Eichmann, the murderer of six million Jews, has a son who is dating underground Jew. 
and he begins to brag about his father's exploits. He doesn't tell her who, who his dad is. He just says, hey, my dad did some incredible things for the Nazis. He's bragging about it. He's boasting about it. They eventually break up for obvious reasons. And Sylvia moves away with her dad. But then she hears some news reports about how the state of Israel is looking for this famous Nazi with the last name of Eichmann. She's like, I dated a guy with the last name of Eichmann, and he said that his dad was like this famous Nazi guy. She's like, holy cow. Maybe it's the same one. So she gets on a bus with her dad, who is blind, and they travel several hours across Argentina. And she walks up alone to the door and knocks on Adolf Eichmann's door. Her dad is around the corner, but he's blind. If things go sideways here, he's not going to be a whole lot of help. She's basically on her own. And she knocks on that door. And Adolf Eichmann comes to the door. She says, excuse me, are you Mr. Eichmann? He's totally caught off guard. He spent the last 20 years trying to hide who he is. And he says, uh, yes. He recognized her. Knew that it was his son's former girlfriend. And then they start making small talk. And she's like, you know, I came to see your son who wasn't home at the time. And they stand there talking for a little while. Her heart must have been racing. Because she has just discovered the killer of millions of Jews. And she's looking him in the eye. It's almost as if he's evil personified in her mind. She sees him. He's right there. And she knows what he's done. She's putting her own life on the line to uncover who he is. Eventually, the conversation ends. She relays the information to the Mossad. And they plan this grab operation where they snatch him at the bus stop and take him back to Israel his crimes. Sylvia is a lot like Esther at the end of chapter 4. She is a woman who decides that she is going to stand up to power. She's going to stand up against evil. Confront evil in its most vicious forms to save her people. To save her and I imagine that Sylvia could have said something similar to what Esther said at the end of chapter 4. If I perish, I perish. Amen. Dear God, we know that your word is good, it is powerful, it is rich. We ask that you would, throughout this week, bring this passage to our hearts and minds causing us to meditate on it, to think about it, and to be changed by it. Help us as we sing, as we continue to worship you and close out our service. In Jesus' name.